0: You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps dude, a course creator, and an open source maintainer in the world of container and cloud native DevOps. These episodes are edited down audio only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all of you patrons for your continued support. It means a lot. Your podcast player should have the show notes for this episode, including links to the original show on YouTube, topics or tools we might discuss, how to support this show with Patreon, and links to get discount coupons on all my courses. You can always get those notes and links at brettfisher.com. In this episode, staff developer advocate and CNCF ambassador David Flanagan joins me to discuss Pulumi and GitOps. David is live every week on YouTube on his channel, Raw Code Academy, and spends his time helping others learn cloud-native tech. Months back, I was on David's Raw Code Academy show to show off Docker Compose version 2, so it was great to reciprocate and discuss our favorite topics, or at least some of our favorite topics, infrastructure as code and GitOps. On the live stream, he did several demos around managing DNS through Pulumi code and managing Kubernetes workloads through Pulumi. So if you'd like to see those, be sure to check out the link to YouTube in the show notes. This audio only version is focused around our conversation of what GitOps and Pulumi are and how they work together for managing your infrastructure and your app deploys. Thanks again for listening and please enjoy this episode with David Flanagan from Pulumi. Hello, internet. My name is Brett. So let's get to it. Today on the show, we have David Flanagan also known as raw code. Hello. <laughs> Hi
1: there. <laughs> Excited to be here, it's gonna be fun.
0: Yeah, we've done things before. We're part of like this community of live streamers talking about DevOps and Kubernetes and stuff. So I feel like we're kindred spirits on the internet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we found a really good way to avoid doing any real work, right? (laughs) Yes,
0: yes. Couldn't have imagined a more complicated thing. It seemed so simple when we started.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Put on a camera, invite a guest, uh, and here we go. It just magic happens. No, that's a lie.
0: There's so much work
1: that goes into this. And I really uh, appreciate and respect the effort you put into your channel, man. You're doing great.
0: Well, thank you. And same to you as well. Yeah. So you can check out raw code. He does this really cool thing called clustered. Can you just tell us what clustered is?
1: Yeah, of course. So clustered is a competitive Kubernetes, if there is such a thing. And that I spin up some bare metal clusters and give them to people. And I tell them, you'll get 48 hours to go smash this cluster to PCs. Like just break it, do whatever you want. And then the teams or the guests, the solo guests will join me live and attempt to fix each other's clusters. So. What's really special about it is that you get to see how people think and debug real potentially real broken clusters. Well, they are real broken clusters, but you know, real outages right. that could happen to anyone. And it just really is a really interesting way to get that knowledge of how to operate Kubernetes from people that do it day in day out.
0: Yeah, so you can check that out on YouTube on his channel, and I think that's a really interesting idea. Have you had a challenge getting people to be on? That's kind of a a vulnerable situation. You gotta be pretty confident in your skills to be public on the internet troubleshooting a server, right?
1: I like to think that I I give people enough support in it, but it's definitely people are intimidated by it. Like it's not just live coding; like you're actually giving people this broken cluster and saying, "Do you know how to work it? What is wrong with this?" And uh, it is very intimidating. But you know, we're all smart people, and sometimes we just need a a bit to slow down and talk about the problems. And it's through those conversations around, around what's going on with the cluster that we learn more about how to. To make it work, right? Like, yeah, I think every valuable lesson we've had, I'll just speak for everybody now. I'm feeling that confident, but that we learn through failure. We never learn when we're getting things right. It's only when we do something wrong, we go, Oh shit, okay, there's something to learn. And now I'm not going to do that again. It's the best way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always feel like my learning capacity is tenfold when. Production is down. There's something that's, maybe that's not quite what you're able to replicate there because, you know, if I lose, I lose, but in 45 minutes or whatever. But I, man, I tell you what, there's nothing more nerve wracking than a team trying to bring up something. in you know, that's the hug ops that we talk about on Twitter all the time is when we see real systems on the internet go down. Like, this is the stuff that teams are made of, right? Like, it's sort of you prove your chops how quickly you can diagnose and recover from failure. And no matter how much planning you do, it, it's always, it always seems like chaos a little bit. So it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. We do our best to prepare for these situations, but you have to go through those situations in order to have seen the symptoms, work out how to quickly identify them, understand what the reconciliation path is. Just It really is the best way to learn. I mean, we've all dropped a production database at one point in our careers, I would assume. Right. And have you done it twice? I hope not. If you have, Oops! Hopefully, I've done it third time. But I mean, I've dropped the production database, and I certainly haven't done it again since. And it's just because you learn right. a lesson,
0: and right. you learn it for life. I did do that very early on, like in my first major Docker project, like seven years ago. I was working with a team for a big five accounting firm, and we inadvertently deleted the volume of the database. And Oops. I, I learned. <laughs> I learned very quickly. <laughs> Luckily we had backups. Yeah. Realize.
1: Well, if you don't have backups, you've also learned you need backups, right? There's right. always a lesson and failures. <laughs> right. um, and just hopefully the blast radius of that first failure isn't too bad.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I love it when people put their disaster stories on Twitter. Uh, I always chime in because I feel like I have some pretty epically big ones that... You know, especially when you talk on stage and you go to conferences, people always assume you know all the things and they assume that you're battle-tested or whatever when you stay on stage. And that's not always true, right? A lot of us are just winging it as we go anyway. And (laughs) so I'm always trying to say, no, 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 I have made, if there's a mistake to be made, I've definitely made it. Like I've made big ones. Uh, I think I took down Netflix's blog on Thanksgiving one year. There's some stories I have that are like, people are thinking, you you still work in this industry because you did that.
1: Well, the people at the top of this industry are the people that have made the most mistakes. I, mm. I, I think that's a pretty fair Ooh. assessment. Sounds you know, like
0: a Yoda quote.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the people that have made one mistake in their entire career probably, well, I, I can't make any assumptions there, but yeah. they've not learned enough lessons yet, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. That's a great, we could talk that whole episode, this whole episode about it, but we're not here for <laughs> Clustered. Go over to Codes channel for that. Here today, we're talking about GitOps. And so you're at Pulumi. So We've done some talks on Pulumi before at this show, but let's get some definitions and stuff out of the way. Let's just start with Pulumi, the product, so people know what that is.
1: So Pulumi is an infrastructure as code tool. It allows you using the supported programming languages to define what your infrastructure, your cloud resources, your GitHub teams and organizations look like. Uh, Supported languages are JavaScript and TypeScript any of the .NET languages, so that's F-sharp, C-sharp, uh, Visual Basic, if you really want to go down that path. We also support Python, And uh, if I forgot one, doo-doo-doo. not sure, but you can use the language, hopefully, that is familiar to you and start describing your infrastructure. So whether that be, I want an EKS cluster on AWS, whether I want a JKE cluster on Google Cloud, maybe I want both, um, then we can write a bit of code. That says this is a new resource, we give it a name, we apply some metadata and properties to it, the size of the cluster, the size of the VM, the SD bucket name, the ACL on the SD bucket, whatever. And then run Pulumi up and voila, we have all of these cloud resources that we, we wanted. People are typically familiar with Terraform. Pulumi is pretty much the same thing, only Terraform went down the route of having a DSL, HCL, whereas Pulumi decided that real programming languages would allow us to have slightly more flexibility than what we do with our infrastructure as code.
0: Right. And for those of you, there's, I think you can Search YouTube for Palumi. There's tons <laughs> of people talking about it. Our friend Victor, "The oh, Paradox" is his podcast. Victor yeah, yeah. Farsik. Everybody look up Victor <laughs> Farsik. That's a great channel. As well as Raw Codes. Palumi has a channel. Like there's just there's a lot. There's becoming a lot more stuff out there. Uh, I think when Victor first told me about it, or I learned it from Victor, I don't know a year ago or whatever. I was vaguely aware of the name, but didn't really understand. The difference between that and the other choices. And I actually really like this title at the top of the website, the developer first infrastructure as code. So I come from a background of ops. So even though I have done programming for probably 30 years, I've always been in the operations role. And in a lot of organizations, especially traditional organizations, unless you were a mainframe operator, operators often weren't programmers. So I feel like a lot of these YAML based or HCL based toolings are, are, are great for people who are not strong in any one, at least popular language and aren't used to that. And there's a lot of those people out there, especially on the Windows side, because that's kind of my traditional, came from the Windows side, a lot of uh, sysadmins and bash programming was about as advanced as we got usually. <laughs> and I love that there's the flip side of this, that, hey, there's so many developers out there that are being thrown the DevOps ball, like they're being thrown the responsibility of more DevOps things. And maybe the ops team is either non existent or not big enough to really take on that work. And I love giving developers the idea that they don't have to learn complete like they can just use the language they're comfortable in and they can just stick with what they know rather than having to learn a whole nother layer of tooling languages inside of YAML and Toml and HCL and all these things, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it's just like programming in general, right? There's this full spectrum of where people lie on it. Some people love to immediately think about how to optimize and have efficient programs with their own abstractions and condense everything down to really small functions. And then there are some people that just want to get on with their day and get the job done and just write big massive functions. And neither is right or wrong. We all have a preference. Yeah. And, and for such code tools are the same. Like People may just want to write YAML or JSON to use CloudFormation, and that's fine. Some people may want to use or learn a DSL like HCL, uh, and that's fine too. But you know what I've seen in the industry is that as the adoption of platform engineering is on a rise, where we have specific teams that build platforms for developers to consume, is that having programming languages that allow us to have a function called create a project or create a platform, and not really expose what that is, is really powerful. And I think Pulumi is a really cool tool that just kind of sits in there and uh, lets people do that if they want to.
0: Yeah, and so this leads us to the conversation that you and I had about what the topic of the show is going to be around GitOps because I don't think I've gone a show in a year and a half now and not used that term. Probably two years now. <laughs> every every show I've, I've mentioned DevOps or uh, GitOps is a part of it. And I don't. It, obviously, it's not in the title of the show. It's not the focus of the show. But I feel like this is really just the evolution of our patterns into a way that we all are starting to agree on how we implement infrastructure and infrastructure change through version control, essentially, even though it's always usually Git. Can you talk a little bit about the GitOps approach and what your, your view of that is?
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about what happened before GitOps so and then I'll, I'll pivot back around. Right? Sure. But for the last 10 years, perhaps a little bit longer, we've seen this shift with developers and operators uh, adopting continuous integration and continuous delivery. And the way that that's worked for the last decade has been that we monitor some version controlled repository, typically Git, that when pushed to the main branch, we trigger some workflows. You know, Jenkins was ubiquitous here for a long time, but now we're seeing things like CircleCI and GitHub Actions. But the ability to codify a workflow that runs on the change of code allows us to have this Thing that updates whatever we want. right? So if we have infrastructure as code that says, I need a VM with this user data, this IP address, and maybe a load balancer in front of it, then I can describe that. And whenever I change the code or my team changed the code, that will automatically reconcile and we're all very happy. And that's been working really well for a long time. However, there's one thing that we didn't, well, I guess we did anticipate, but maybe didn't think would have such a large effect on these systems. And that is people. And I say <laughs> that with a little bit of anger, is that people like to do things to make their jobs easier or faster. And there's drift. The concept of drift is really, really important. And what I mean by that is that we can have this wonderful automation, this continuous integration and delivery, all, everything in get, But at the end of the day, is it impossible for someone within your organization to go into the cloud portal um, console thing uh, and click buttons? And the answer is yes, they can. They can go and create new resources. They can edit existing resources. They can be testing things. Maybe there's an outage, right? And maybe the fastest way to get things back online for your customers is to go into a portal and click a button rather than waiting for that CI or CD system to run. And that is what we call drift when the state of the world is affected by something outside of the automation, and we need ways to be able to reconcile that too. So if we make changes outside of the automation, well, the automation isn't gonna know that that happened until the next time we push to the main branch and that automation runs again, and hopefully the drift isn't too large, that it can be reconciled. But it's very common for the changes to be so complex or have collateral damage, that the changes can't be reconciled. We end up in a broken state, and then you've got a choice of building a new environment, reverting all the changes, or you don't know throwing your hands up in there and saying, screw it, I'm going to the pub. Uh, difficult challenge, that. I, yeah, <laughs> and that's what GitOps tries to solve, right, is that we don't wait for code changes to handle reconciliation. We actually monitor uh, as close to real-time as we can, because we understand that the world has side effects. Things change. People click buttons. Uh, even cosmic rays can chain bits on a hard drive. We've seen that before. A really cool article I'll try and, paste and uh, drop into the chat. But there's all these things that can affect our infrastructure. And GitOps is a control loop that runs inside of your Kubernetes cluster, or maybe even just on a server, that is constantly refreshing the state of the world and saying, does do I need to reconcile everything back to this predefined state that we have inside of our source code?
0: Yeah, I think some of us were trying to accomplish some of these things before GitOps was a term. And what I've loved about the last, let's say, three, year, three years or so, is it's caught on really fast. And now we're starting to see the tooling. We're seeing tooling now that is designed around the idea of GitOps, rather than us trying to shoehorn in an existing older tool into the approach that GitOps takes. We saw that first with containers where nothing was designed for a container. And, and now we have <laughs> container support everywhere. It's in our editors, it's in all our tooling. It's just yep. by default, it's all in the CI tools, everything. And I feel like the same thing is slowly happening to GitOps where this approach of, I start to ask vendors now on the show when we have new products on the show, maybe it's a hosting platform or it's, a, it's something that affects your infrastructure and it's some third-party tool. My ask is usually, Okay, so you say you support GitOps, but if I go in your web interface and I change something, does it get reflected in my my Git, my Git history? Or is it out of the GitOps approach and I've now br- I've bifurcated and broken everything? And it's funny because it's caused some really interesting conversations where people are saying, well, no one's really asked for that. But I do see that as a... That, is a, that has been a problem where people go in and touch things outside of the robots and all of us were trying to do this 10 years ago. A lot of us were trying to do this 10 years ago on AWS. And it was a nightmare because people would just go in AWS and click buttons and then it would undo all of our automation. So happens
1: all the time, right? Like we can try and put best practices in or we can make changes to the back end. But at some point, something's going to drift. And GitOps is a really cool methodology that allows us to at least try and not stop it, of course, but to try and and minimize the collateral damage of that drift by reconciling as fast as we can.
0: Right. And so presumably, Pulumi can help us with this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Pulumi can. I think one of the things that Pulumi does really well is we get this rich interface. Because we're using programming languages, I can use VS Code plugins, right? So when I write in TypeScript, I get an autocomplete for my infrastructure, for my Kubernetes custom resources, for everything. It, it's just such a cool tool. And then when we lay it in GitOps, Polymy becomes even more powerful because we can run the, Polymy has a Kubernetes operator that runs inside of your cluster, will monitor your Polymy projects from a Git repository. Uh, and whenever something drifts or changes, it will reconcile that straight back to what we want. So you can, continue to root, use all these cool patterns that Pulumi exposes end-to-end, which I think it makes it even more powerful because I'm not just using Pulumi to spin up my Kubernetes cluster. I'm running Pulumi inside of my Kubernetes cluster and then using Pulumi to deploy all of my Kubernetes objects. And that end-to-end workflow is just super cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, because Pulumi is way bigger than just Kubernetes, but it's great that you've dialed down into Kubernetes and sort of become a first-class citizen Inside of a cluster. Yeah.
1: I mean, you can define a stack inside of Kubernetes. You know, you could just use kubectl to apply it, but you can use Pulumi to apply it too. And there are benefits to sticking within the the Pulumi ecosystem. You know, I think we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I just think that the interface that Pulumi exposes for all of these resources is great because it's something that's never really been a good developer experience. I've written a lot of Terraform in my life. I've written a lot of Troposphere. I've written a lot of Chef and Saltstack and Puppet, all of these amazing tools. But whenever I'm in my IDE and I'm trying to write a new, you know, uh, Chef cookbook, playbook, Ansible playbook, Assault manifest, or even HDL, The level of autocomplete and awareness has always been a little lackluster to the point where I think, and I'll speak for myself and not for everyone, but there was a lot of copy pasta going on. Like I'm always going to the docs, finding an example of how to spin up a Kubernetes cluster, pasting it into my thing, uh, making the changes that I think I need and then going through a test phase, which is really just run the Terraforming up and then see if I get what I want and if not, make a change and then run it again. And that's my test process and it's slow and painful. And and to bring Fulumi back into the conversation now is that because we're using programming languages, we have autocomplete and language servers that knows what all these objects look like. And you can actually just tab your way through a resource that you've never seen before and get it to be successful. And not only that, we have access to all the testing infrastructure for all of these programming languages. So if you wanted a TDD for your infrastructure, then you can do that. And it's a lot faster than spinning up VMs and user data and then checking to see if it works and spending it back then and, and that way. So.
0: Right. Yeah. By the way, if the links for these GitHub repos that we're just looking at are down in the description below. The thing that I wanted to ask you up front was you sent me these links and <laughs> what is the difference between these two? What is the difference between the operator and the resource provider?
1: Yeah, of course. So <laughs> the preliminary Kubernetes resource provider can be used with any preliminary program and will create deployments, services, config maps, any Kubernetes resource. The operator is responsible for running inside of the cluster and executing a Pulumi program
0: for you. Okay. So when would you use, would you use these
1: separately? So you would write a Pulumi program that used the Kubernetes provider, describe all of your Kubernetes resources, and you could just run Pulumi up on your terminal and it would all just work. The operator comes in when you want to automate that further to the GitOps workflow. So you would push your Pulumi code to Git and then deploy the operator to the cluster. And then its its responsibility is really just to say, has this Git repository changed? Has the state of the world changed? And at any point in that time, to make sure that the Pulumi up happens to bring things back in line.
0: So, so- you typically use them both. Right, right. So the resource provider, um, let me make sure I, let me see if I can say it a different way if I got it correctly. So the re- <laughs> resource provider is so that Pulumi can talk to my cluster directly, essentially? Is it like a conduit to the Kubernetes API kind of thing?
1: Yeah, it speaks to the API server. It speaks to the API server language and it can create and patch resources for you.
0: Yeah, so it's, that sounds like the thing, the way I get started maybe, is that something I maybe would do? And then once I've understood that stuff... Then I and I want to go more advanced into GitOps, and I want to actually have the cluster automating itself and re- rectifying the difference between the, the cluster itself. That's when the operator comes into play, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, people are more familiar with Terraform, right? It's been a, a huge part of this infrastructure as code thing for the last five or six years, maybe a little bit longer. But the, the Pulumi and the resource provider is just the Terraform component. And then the Kubernetes operator is really applying or bringing in Flux or Argo CD, You know these mm-hmm. other tools that don't necessarily do any provisioning of resources or infrastructure, but know how to run the program that does. And that's where the operator
0: fits in. Does the operator replace something like Argo CD and Flux or does it work alongside them? You can
1: definitely use them alongside each other, but you can be just as successful running the Kubernetes operator. And that's the pattern I use on my own. I now just have Pulumi at CICD, Pulumi in the cluster, Pulumi on my desktop. So just one tool to kind of make it all work.
0: (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and I I wasn't really thinking before the show and thinking let's show off this tool But if we're going to do a GitOps workflow with Pulumi, I guess you're recommending that this would be the approach, the best approach, right? Is to use the operator, throw it in your clusters.
1: Yeah, there's definitely, it's advantageous to use the Pulumi Kubernetes operator over Argo CD and Flux because it it really understands Pulumi because Pulumi wrote it. So you run a risk of using Argo CD or Flux and it could Pulumi up and something could happen, and it could exit, and you end up with this weird snapshot of state that is neither here nor there. And it's difficult for Pulumi to kind of recover from those situations without manual intervention. The Pulumi operator is built in a way that it knows how to snapshot more efficiently, so that if the pod were terminated, om killed, uh, the node was drained, uh, a data center just shut down, then the Pulumi operator um, can still pick that back up and resume from where it left off. Um, So there's some special uh, knowledge built into it to handle those use cases. And a Pulumi operator is very similar to Crossplane, another really cool project in this space. Crossplane is a a Kubernetes operator uh, that takes YAML manifests and Kubernetes custom resources to then also go and create cloud resources for you. So they're very, very similar projects with a slightly different um, take.
0: Yeah. Well, very cool. And we've done... We've had some demos before on this show with Pulumi, but never focused around the idea of GitOps and not really focused on anything like this Kubernetes operator.
1: Well, what, one of the things I'm trying to do with the Pulumi operator uh, is try and promote better hygiene with GitOps. I, I feel like GitOps has moved so fast that we're at a point where we need to slow down and say, okay, are we actually doing this the right way? Mm. And I actually gave a talk on this. GitOps, con GitOps days, I can't remember, the GitOps days in 2020. But I gave it such a scientific name that I don't think anyone's ever watched it. (laughs) So I called this talk like applying the law of Demeter to GitOps, which to me is like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Of course we want to have better coupling within our systems and principle of least knowledge, but maybe I should have called it something catchier. So okay, the law of Demeter. So it's about having systems that are loosely coupled and don't have too much knowledge about the other systems that are in orbit or surround them, et cetera, depending on the language that you want to use. So what I see with GitOps today, and the major tools here are are Flux, and we've got Customize, or Customize can be used in a GitOps pattern, is that they embed the knowledge of all of the environments into the repository. And this is typically done with the overlay model. So you would have a directory for dev, a directory for staging, and a directory for prod, and you have like a base layer, and then we apply the patches depending on the environment that we're going to deploy to. And I just don't understand why we're putting all of this environmental knowledge into this get style repository. Because to me, it feels like we should have one definition of what our application looks like and runs like. You know, we had the 12 factor manifesto before Docker in containers, right? Where we if we wanted to run apps in the cloud, then we have to inject the config because we just want to be able to build a container image. And GitOps just went then I believe the wrong path, although I could be wrong myself. And I, I want us to have this concept of canonical GitOps, one canonical representation of our platform and our application that then can be by the environment rather than the application running in an environment. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
0: Right. <laughs> this, is, this goes in. I mean, it's a similar conversation around microservice development. And I, I think I heard, I think I was on a show with Kelsey Hightower once, that he had this great quote. I'm going to try to see if I can remember it. We were talking about microservice development and how using containers as and you know whether it's Kubernetes or Docker or Compose or whatever as a method for running all the dependent services while you're developing on a particular service, right? And that's very much more common in a... Well, it's common in everybody's workflow now, but it gets w- way worse with a microservice scenario. And he was talking about how he doesn't develop in containers because if I needed a whole bunch of things running in the background for me to test one of my microservices, and I'm really just developing a distributed monolith, not a microservice. And he was basically talking about this exact same problem that everything was tightly coupled. So there was no opportunity for you to swap parts. And that's kind of what this whole modern CNCF DevOps approach is trying to teach us long-term is that if we can all agree on the points, where the points of integration are for all of our separate tools, and set those up as some sort of standard, then maybe we can all start swapping parts and build this thing together without having to change everything when you change one thing. Is that what you're trying to talk about?
1: There's definitely a component of that to it. Definitely. Yeah. And exactly. the coupling goes beyond just like, again, yeah, microservices. we can definitely, it's, it's so easy to couple them, right? That's the easy path. The hard path is, is loose coupling and being able to have systems that can be deployed independently. But yeah, GitOps is doing a similar trajectory or this whole layered hierarchy thing for environmental knowledge. In fact, let's go through an example, right? You you are doing GitOps now, Brett, and you've got this application, it deploys their Kubernetes cluster, and you've got overlays set up with customized for dev station and prod, and then a product owner. I'll be the product owner. I come along and I go, hey, Brett, we, we really need a pre-prod testing environment for uh, performance testing. Can can you spin that up for me? And with your hierarchical approach to GitOps, well, you have to go to the Git directory, create a new directory, add all the overlays that describe how to run inside of this environment, and then push it, and then deploy it to your environment. And that, to me, feels very much like an anti pattern that Why does my continuous integration component need to know about what the environments are? Mm-hmm. Especially if we want ephemeral environments. What if we want to spin up a new environment on every pull request and do integration tests across an entire thing? Do I have to then commit those automated into a Git repository and do that, and then spit them back out, and then delete them? And it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So why can't we just describe what our applications look like once, and then if the environment has to tweak anything, have the environment itself know what those variants are and apply them in the cluster? And that, if that I think, is the future of GitOps. Hmm. And Pulumi. That a lot easier than all these other
0: tools. Yeah, and I can certainly see how using traditional tools, you'd end up with a a suite of tools in order to co- sort of accomplish that. And and they don't necessarily all work together necessarily easy without writing shell scripts and other automations to do things. So I do feel like you're onto something with describing how it's all in the subtlety of the details, and these are more patterns and practices than this is a tool enforcing these things, which this is where we're living in the gray essentially as i would call it like there's black and white of like which tool you choose to do certain things but then there's how you implement those tools and that's really the hard part that's rarely talked about especially past the 101 stage of every youtube video ever made and i think that's the hard part for us as educators you know people that are in the community talking doing whether it's a live show or a conference talk i'm always looking for ways to get deeper maybe not a black belt session, but get deeper into showing how these tools connect to the other tools so that we all get a, a sense for, you know, at the end of the day, when I want to talk to someone about, you're going to take on Kubernetes, this is going to be a thing. We're going to do this thing called Kubernetes. What else do they have to worry about and, and it not be this continuous exp- Like I don't want to show them the CNCF landscape chart and say, yeah, that, uh, figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to give them patterns that say, okay, well these are the three tools that are gonna get you ninety nine percent of the way there. Just use these three tools. You have to learn them. Because obviously we all like the challenge with this Kubernetes landscape is that we learn Kubernetes and then that's just the beginning. And we really need all these other things to really yeah. get the job done. And it's it's a lot of work. <laughs>
1: I don't Yeah. I, I think this is a very unique situation. Like with the CNCF containers and Kubernetes. Like all this stuff is still super new, and it's almost become some of these patterns are just a victim of the velocity of the projects have moved. Like within the last seven years, we've went from, you know, traditional operator style stacks, bare metal machines, slight adoption of cloud compute, uh, and then just flew right through to containers, Kubernetes, distributed systems, microservices. Uh, and you're like, whoa, hold hold on a minute. Yeah. Now, there are some people in the community that've been on top of it. You know, like yourself playing with containers, educating people on containers. But there's still 80% of the developer technical world that are maybe still working with virtual machines and monolithic applications, deploying to bare metal servers. And yeah, the, the speed that we've adapted to this cloud native landscape, I think, has caused a few cracks in patterns and bad practices to slip in. But we have, hopefully, plenty of time to try and correct some of this stuff as well. So
0: yeah. Yeah, I think that I think the future is be nimble. Like we haven't all figured out these things, so just expect that whatever you're running now or even implementing now might not be the same thing you're using in a couple of years, at least for the foreseeable future.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. Like right now, when there's a problem that hasn't been solved in Kubernetes or cloud native, like the solution is always some hacky project from some developer that is in this space, that ends up getting some traction. And then it's like, all oh, right, okay, we're going down this path now. And there's never that longer-term thought process, thinking about it, looking at other ways. Oh, I'm sure other people are doing this. Um, but because, again, it's only been seven years, and we're all doing containers, distributed systems, Kubernetes on the cloud. Like It's just the speed that we're doing this. We're solving problems as we hit them maybe not taking enough time. And that's a really sweeping statement and I hate myself for saying it, but not taking enough time to really look at the bigger picture of where we need to be uh, Mm in another 10 years time.
0: Right. Yeah, and then I think when I talk a lot about just the the adoption of containers, I talk a lot about the speed aspect that really that every major technology shift we've had, at least in my lifetime, has always been about speed. Not necessarily speed of memory and processors, although that is a factor, but it's just speed about taking a business idea and getting in front of customers and and then doing that over and over and over again. And everything in the middle is up for grabs. Everything in the middle is is in a state of flux at all times. And I think a lot of us just really sometimes we just have this feeling of I just want the same I just want one tool or two tools and I want it to be the same tool in 5 years. And I'm just sadly thing is I don't know how realistic that is anymore. Maybe a tool like Palumi that is a, in a language can work around all these changes in the future, but as we speak up something else you know, like, like there's purpose-fit tools like Argo or Flux and they're great right now, but will they still be the tool to solve the job in three years, right, if, if we're constantly learning and c- creating these new patterns all the time?
1: Strangely enough, the most requested language for plenumi is Ruby. Yeah, I haven't written any Ruby in, in 10 years, but it is our most popular request.
0: I do work with multiple teams currently that are, well, multiple organizations that are all using Ruby and I happen to, I don't know, I feel like I got my start in like in the startup space when I started getting into startup stuff 12 years ago this is a long time ago everybody was doing Ruby back then and so I know a lot of those people and they're all still very much Ruby so I'm not voting for any particular languages but (laughs) I I do that is a real thing and people do still use Ruby very much so yeah again it's just perspective right
1: but I I used to write some Ruby and then Elixir happened I think twenty. 2014, 2015, as everyone started moving over there. So I wrote Elixir for a few years. I, I was, I just, because I, I didn't write it anymore myself, I just assumed no one else wrote it.
0: Right. That's, right. that's the brain Right. <laughs> that's all our, as we all have our own worldview of the, especially of programming. Yeah. That's why I think that the, going on a total tangent here, Stack Overflow's developer survey to me is probably one of the most valuable because it does, it, it is not biased on any one. Obviously, there's a bias towards programmers, but I don't yeah. feel like it's, uh, biased on the cncf or a particular tool or a particular gartner or whatever's access to different fortune 500 companies or whatever so i feel like it's always a good measure and these languages are all always extremely popular and so like cold fusion which is not it's not called <laughs> cold fusion anymore it's still a thing and there's still people developing it I, I was just at their conference three years ago giving a docker talk and i was it wasn't it wasn't a huge c- conference but there's still people doing it even though i thought it was gone 15 years ago so, and they're yeah. running
1: like, their cold fusion in containers. Is, is that happening? Yeah, I mean? yeah. In fact, yeah. I
0: ran a workshop for a, a CMS running on cold fusion, and yeah, and we were teaching everybody how to use. Well, at the time, it was Docker Swarm, and we skipped Kubernetes for that short a short one. We just wanted to show them basic orchestration. But yeah, we were trying to say, hey, look. Everything's going into containers, so you people, too, need to be in containers now. So, yeah. I, mean, I think once you create a language, it doesn't die. Like, it never goes away. There's always going to be somebody developing. <laughs> well,
1: here's a question for you. Are we still going to have containers in five years, or will we all be compelled to WebAssembly?
0: Right? Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not jumping no. on that bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may not have a choice, right? <laughs> eh, yeah. <laughs> I think, I, well, WebAssembly is nice, but it's one of those things where the thing that Docker got right is that everybody got to come along on that ride. Right, no one was excluded from the Docker container revolution. It was not environment or language or you know processor, and had no limits. Right, and ideal in the brownfield world where everything is existing code and everyone's got existing projects, and not that you need to write from scratch. But I feel like if it excludes anything or anyone, it's probably not going to be the majority of people. So.
1: I me. think what we'll see is as Kubernetes will start to support multiple runtimes. We'll have Kubernetes APIs running container workloads, WebAssembly workloads, unique workloads. I think that landscape is, is is going to expand, and we'll see a lot more innovation in there. I I do think the Kubernetes API will be here in ten years time.
0: Yeah, you can quote me on that. I, yeah, I, think that, that, I do. I, I agree completely. <laughs> I do think the Docker file and the Kubernetes API, like the two things, whether it's called the Docker file or container file or whatever, it doesn't matter. So. <laughs> The idea of a build document that is written in this Bashish language, a little bit, and then the idea that we have this consistent. Uh, api I think the, the last couple of weeks I've been talking about, like uh, if you if you're in this config space, if any of you are like diehard sysadmins from back in the day, we had the config DB and we had all sorts of tools that would manage the config DB, and I think that was that thing. That is still more or less a, a consistent thing today, but now we have this application version of that and that is the kubernetes api it is the now standard for all developers to deploy against and it's the list of constraints i think the weaveworks podcast i keep mentioning it lately because it's it's been on my mind but the weaveworks uh modern ops podcast for those of you who like like podcasts that's a great podcast it talks about operations they had a great episode recently where they talked about that kubernetes is really a list of constraints that developers can. Design their architecture against, and I love that approach of saying like the Kubernetes API is just sort of it's going to be there. Assume it's what you're going to use. Eventually, it's probably going to be what you do for everything, including serverless, like you're saying. So yeah, totally. I'm on board with what you're thinking. Hey there, podcast listener. At this point in the live show, which this podcast comes from. We do a pretty detailed demo getting into a lot of the features, and it didn't necessarily make sense to put this in an audio-only podcast. So if you're interested more in the tool and how it functions, check out a link in the show note that will take you to the YouTube Live that this comes from, and then you can get the full demo there. We're now going to jump back into the conversation after we're done with most of that demo.
1: I can tackle that question in the chat just now while we wait, though. Um, does Polymy have something like a state file? It does. Um, for developers, storing your state on the Polymy SaaS is free. You can have as many Polymy projects as you want and never have to worry about where the state lives, which is amazing. If you don't want to use Polymy SaaS, you can use um, any SC-compatible blob storage, so Google GCS, Amazon S3, AKS, etc., Um, and store it there. That works just fine. You can use local state, which is what I use and the kubernetes context why am i using local state well because if i shut down the cluster the state is completely irrelevant um, i don't right. create any resources outside of the cluster so i just use local state and keep it in there yeah.
0: but this is an interesting pattern i'm glad we kind of went into some of the weeds of this because um it you know you're you're doing real stuff here and that's better i think than a 30 second demo of what pulumi can do for specifically for kubernetes right for those of us that are living our life in a DevOps context. So we're we're constantly, you know, whether we're developers full time or not, but we're spending so much time in Kubernetes command lines, Kubernetes YAML, whether it's Helm, whatever. And seeing if I were to take on Pulumi as a tool, like what what would my days look like, right? Like what kind of patterns would I be Implementing what changes would I be making in Git as a part of my job to manage infrastructure with Pulumi? I think this is, at least for me, someone who's not used it before, it's super helpful um, to get an idea of okay, I, I, I like this. Like choosing a language and then writing in that language with help inside of VS Code is, I think, greatly appreciated we were talking earlier, that's another thing. We were talking about failures earlier in the in the show. Uh, for those that were here earlier, we were talking about just how like, failure is a part of success in this world as humans, but also very much in server management, DevOps development, right? You start from a place of everything's broken and then you eventually make everything right. And then we deploy and then things might break and then we just have to fix them. A lot of people on this show or that show up on this show are coming from my courses. So they tend to be newer at containers and DevOps. And I think sometimes we all have unrealistic expectations about how correct we all are the first time we do something or the, even the 10th time we do something and we're just not. And I think a friend of mine, Colt Steele, who actually has a very popular million, I think like million people have taken his Udemy course on web development, but he actually paid a friend to track, like he's a senior developer at maybe a Fang company or something and he, the guy basically gave him his browser history for a day. And he was able, or re- record a screen for, for a day or something. And he brought it all down to basically what did he learn? Like what happened throughout the day? And most of it was trying something in code. It doesn't work. Trying again, doesn't work. <laughs> Going to Stack Overflow, searching for a solution, you know, spending an hour on a thing that should have taken 10 minutes. And this was a senior developer, right? And it was a senior developer at a real big tech company. So it wasn't just, you know, someone who was air quote senior. And I also find this to be very true of DevOps and operations as well. I think in terms of the most popular pages over the last five years in my Google Chrome are... Docker, the Docker build <laughs> documentation, like for Docker files the Docker compose documentation and Kubernetes.io, like the documentation for Kubernetes. Like the, I just live on these sites. And no matter how many times I do things, there's always some little option that I don't remember or I don't understand. We're always learning.
1: Yeah. Well, it makes mean, you a senior or someone who's good at this isn't getting things right first time every time. It's reducing the. Time to recovery from failure, like seeing a problem and then fixing it. Like, we get better at that. We get better mm-hmm. at understanding the constraints uh, and how to find solutions to problems. Not, we, we don't immediately, after 10 years in the industry, just do everything right the first
0: time. Because, yeah, for sure, not how it works. <laughs> Let's review real quick the raw code show. When do you air? When do you normally go? Live or do concert
1: you? Is, is every Thursday mostly, but I, I do try and stream a couple of times a week, but there's no set schedule. I really just I reach out to people working on something cool and see when they can they join me and then we we stream so at least every week, but no set time.
0: Right. Oh okay, okay. So basically subscribe and click the bell on his channel so you will get notified when he goes live. Check out Pulumi. that's where he works. He's a developer advocate. Also a CNCF ambassador. I did not mention that at the beginning. But he is the community support for all these CNCF projects that are never ending. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Any other ways for people to, to reach out
1: to you? Twitter is the best way. I'm Rockload there. I'm always happy to help people. Like you said, I'm a CNCF ambassador and I'm cloud native support. I mean, yeah, I spend a great amount of my time just trying to help people with uh, cloud native technologies because it's difficult. It's fast moving. It changes. So yeah, if you do need any help with anything, I have office
0: hours. the links on my Twitter profile. Come and say hello. Very nice. People can reach out for direct support. Don't abuse it. We kind of do, yeah. (laughs) Don't abuse it, internet. Be nice. He's (laughs) nice, be nice to him. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's absolutely okay that the demos didn't go perfect because I think this this really highlights just like, we, we got stuff done, we showed off some stuff, and not everything goes perfect the first time. And I think that it's great that more demos, are like that thanks again raw code david appreciate it you can see him live next week or this week on his channel (laughs)
1: Well, cluster is back next week but uh thank you for having me i had an absolute blast
0: yeah we'll do it again sounds good all right bye everybody ciao thanks so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode